Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today is Aoife Moore, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner and native of Derry, the latter fact being highly relevant to some of our discussion today. If you're very welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. That's great. Sounds <laughs> sounds like we're in a holiday camp or something there. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me this. How has this particular lockdown been treating the denizens of Leinster House? Uh, this one's definitely harder. We're basically not allowed in to our offices. Uh, the doll only sits two days. It only sits for a few hours on those days. And it sits in the CCD. That's the convention centre. Yeah, in Dublin. So it means you very rarely see anyone, even if you are there. Most people choose not to go onto the CCD because for the sheer size of it, the journalists are all back up in the nosebleed section. And even when you're there, it's incredibly hard to hear the politicians, even with the microphones and the video technology. So most people just choose to stay at home and listen to it live. There's no real reason to be there for a lot of the time. So this one's definitely be harder because I think like everyone else, so there's they, a serious lack of social interaction. So they don't sit at all in the doll this time around and it's only in the convention centre and only two days a week? Yeah, only in the convention centre and only two days a week because of like the level five restrictions. They basically just said until it goes down uh, with community transmission, they can't justify being back in the doll because as you know, like the doll chamber doesn't have any windows. It's a really small kind of basement chamber. It's terrible for ventilation. So it's just better because they're already paying for the CCD quite a large amount of money that they may as well use it um, yeah. while the community transmission is so high. Very good. Now, away from the hot house of politics, um, if yourself and Paul Hosford and the examiner wrote what I have to say was a cracking piece of journalism last Saturday for the paper, about the rise of the right in this country, the extremist right, and the threat that they might pose. One thing, Aoife, that leaped out at me about it is the how much of this stuff is actually concentrated online. And just in a similar vein, I see the other day that the tarnished uh, Leo Varadkar, interestingly, he said that he fears that the hatred online against politicians might end up in violence someday. And we've actually seen that in other countries. But just in terms of those two things, just first of all, to deal with the rise of these extremists, there obviously is an awful lot of activity online in these echo chambers that they have and what have you. But do you think they pose a real danger in terms of their potential to spread and to to, to get traction with a certain element of the population here? Well, we do know that compared to other countries in Europe, Ireland is basically an outlier. Our rise of the far right has not been as pronounced that it has been in, say, maybe Italy or, or Greece. So we are lucky in one sense that we're kind of on a lower rate 
of seeing the rise of the right. However, my big concern would be we are heading in now to another recession. and We're not that long out of a recession. We're heading back into another one. And this one has caused, you know, mass unemployment and serious issues on the health service and then serious issues for people's mental health. And we know from study after study I have read about the rise of the right is that when people feel vulnerable, when they have lost their jobs, when they are mentally not as fit as they were, this is when people are attracted to these message boards. They're vulnerable to being radicalised by the far right. And as we head into another recession, that's where my concern would be that if we don't make it clear what Ireland stands for and because there's a lot of wishy-washy kind of narrative around it saying it's not that big a deal, it's not something we have to worry about. I think we're lucky in the way that our rise hasn't been as pronounced as it has in other countries, but we also have the chance to stamp it out a lot earlier. And by keeping, keeping on saying, well, it's not as bad for us, just paves the way for it to get worse. So we're so much better being proactive about it now than five years down the road saying, geez, I wish we had done something at the time because we know there have already been instances of violence. We have already seen people assaulted. I actually think you were there, Mick, the day a woman was assaulted on uh, Kildare Street. We know what happened to Lord Mayor Hazel Chew when people turned up at her house and intimidated her. And we've seen, you know, all our instances of threats made against all our politicians. So I would be concerned that these things can get out of hand really quickly. Look what happened in the UK. In the UK, they did not want to talk about the rise of the far right. And then Joe Cox was murdered. So we know what can happen. And I would be very remiss for us to continue to say, well, it's not really an issue here when we could be actually doing something about it now to ensure that it doesn't become a bigger issue. Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned. I was at one to one. I was at actually, I think it was the one that was after the time that woman got assaulted. And um, yeah, I saw a, a different thing. I saw two sets of them going at it violently, but that's a whole other issue that I got into loads of trouble for at the time. And I won't specifically go there right now. But two things you mentioned there, Aoife. One, Hazel Chu, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, what she has been subjected to is absolutely appalling. And I saw one interview with her whereby she spoke about being at home, I think, um, in, in the mansion house where the Lord Mayor lives. And I, from recollection, I think she mentioned her husband, who, who's a Green Party TD himself, that I think he mightn't have been present and there was this crowd outside and she felt so intimidated. I mean, it's appalling stuff altogether. But the other thing you mentioned, if it's not stamped out, how do you go about that? at this stage of the evolution of that kind of uh, stuff? It can be really something as simple as media literacy and holding social media companies to account. I would say at this stage of the pandemic, everyone in Ireland has someone in their life, someone in their family, someone close to them, who has shared something on social media or said something out loud that has given them cause for concern, whether it's about, you know, the vaccine whether it's about the COVID numbers, whether it's about lockdown. every I think everyone would say someone in their life has said something that you're quite sure they read on social media and is not true. Stuff like that spreads so, so quickly. And if Ireland as a state could hold social media companies to account to flag 
I hate the term fake news, but incorrect information and take down sites that are promoting hate, take down groups that are promoting hate, not wait around for two weeks until a content moderator can get there and then they can decide whether it's wrong or not. The protest at the Mansion House for Hazel to protest Hazel Chu was organised in a Facebook group with a number of people in it and had been reported to Facebook, as far as I'm concerned, and wasn't taken down because Hazel Chu knew about the group before the thing happened and she was already aware that something was going to happen that day. So something as easy as media literacy and holding social media companies would not go all the way, but would be the start of what we could do to try and stamp this out. Because if we don't, the the worst that we can expect of it is what we see in America now, where you know a third of the population believes in some of the most ridiculous, fantastical theories that we can laugh about. But at the end of the day, those platforms where those lies grow are all available in Ireland too. People in Ireland can read that as well. It's not an American problem. It could be our problem as well. Very true. And the other thing you mentioned, and I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of the fears about the rise of this sort of stuff often comes in the wake of a recession. And when you said that, it reminded me myself, I remember now, I don't know, was it 2009, 2010? But I remember writing a column to that effect for the recession that was coming in then, which at the time was a savage recession. We'll have to see how bad this one gets. And thinking because we'd had such um, an influx of people from other countries over the previous 20 years in, in, in rich the place, in my opinion, that, you know, there's a possibility there'd be that kind of backlash. It didn't happen then, but as opposed to that, you could also argue in terms of the way politics has evolved here since the, the economic collapse of 2008. We're slower for this kind of thing to feed through because the really big change in politics we've had only occurred last year, 12 years after the recession. So it could well be the case, the point you're making has more validity in this country that it's in this particular recession, there's far greater danger of that type of thing rising rather than the last time around the other factor there being a course that even in the last decade the significance that social media and its potential to corrupt it obviously is a potential to do good as well but that has been so much increased that uh, those factors mean that there is far greater danger this time around if we're facing into a recession. Absolutely and things like you know the notion of getting radicalised by YouTube 10 years ago was not something that was on anyone's radar. The Having an iPhone that you can sit on 15, 16 hours a day with a constant news feed. A news feed that is actually curated by an algorithm. And like you hear so many stories of people who initially start on self-help videos and they end up down this rabbit hole of far-right lunacy. And, you know, that's what's different this time. And also, you know, things like, I think a lot of people say, you know, when you have a cause to rally behind and things like the water charges, I think in Irish society, things like the water charges kind of turned people away from the notion of blaming immigrants and kind of brought people in this kind of community spirit of saying it's actually not our fault or immigrants' fault, it's the government's fault because the government created this, the government bailed out the banks. And without something like that, without a giant cause to rally behind, people will sit in the house, they will sit on their phones and they will look for pleasing narratives, convenient narratives to make them feel better because it's so much easier to blame somebody that you can see. Like if you can see, I don't know, like an asylum seeker who's now come out of direct provision and they've got a house in your street, 
it is and you love your mum it is so much easier to point the finger at that asylum seeker rather than pointing the finger at the government in Ireland who's been in charge of housing for 10 years and saying it's actually your fault I live in my ma's house and not the person who just got a house and that would be my major concern going into this recession is with all the stuff that we see on social media and with the constant need for social media now and, there's con- and the proliferation of social media companies and lack of fact-checking, that this could get worse. Politically, Aoife, in terms of getting any political traction, do you see much prospect to that? Because again, as you say, we're an outlier in Europe to the extent that there is no real, what you want to call far-right type of uh, people who've got elected office and none of the parties appear to be pandering to that at all. So politically, do you see the prospect of them getting much traction with um, with seats, for example, in council, not to mind in the doll. No. Um, like we saw in the last election, the likes of, you know, Jim O'Doherty and the National Party, like they didn't even get their deposits back. And I think that's a real um, credit to, you know, Irish society is that there isn't, you know, the appetite for these kind of far-right actors, not in any kind of one area or any kind of organised um, voting block that they could vote somebody in. You know, we saw, for instance, uh, I think her party, or we might call it a party, Anti Corruption Ireland, which was Gemma O'Dory, she ran in Fingal and, and tried to exploit the issues in places in Fingal, like Balbriggan, where there's a big immigrant population and, you know, nobody voted for her, basically. She got very little first preference votes. So, that's not what I would be concerned about. What I would be concerned about is there is already TDs in the doll who use racist language or have said racist things in the past. There are, and they get elected. You know, we saw, and I know this is a different kind of election, but Peter Casey, um, the kind of remiss to say the dairyman who ran, <laughs> who ran for president and came second, built most of his profile on discrimination against travellers. So we know that things like this can gain some kind of support in in the state. But as a voting block, I don't think they're organized enough. I don't think, you know, you would get enough in one locality to vote somebody in. But I would worry that certain people who are already elected already say racist things and they keep getting voted in. You know, I don't want to name names, but everybody knows who they are. So it's not that they're not in the doll and it's great and we're never going to have racists in the doll or we're never going to have people who have racist beliefs in the doll because we already do and we already have. But it's just something that we would need to keep an eye on as time goes on because if things keep going the way they're going, you know, I would hope when we roll out of the pandemic, the misinformation about stuff like that will stop or at least get smaller. But it is something I think we would need to keep an eye on. Absolutely. And you mentioned individuals in the doll. I think the outstanding feature of those and individuals who have run for election, the outstanding feature is that they all tend to be independents, which would suggest yeah. that parties for the greater, to the greatest extent, are not willing to accommodate those kind of um of views. Yeah, it is. It is a thing. One other element to that that I, I throw in, and this is on a very hopeful note rather than anything else. Again, as you say, a recession is real fertile ground for that. But some of the uh, type of uh, pointy headed economists that I know are suggesting we may not be going into a recession uh, when we come out of this. That great old phrase that I love, pent up demand. Apparently, there's a pile of 
pent up demand there and lots of people are only waiting for the chance to spend pots of money. So, you know, you'd never know. Yeah, but that's the, that's the people who got to keep their job. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, you're right. And and whereas we might end up with a recession in, in general, you could see this dreaded K-shaped recovery where uh, one section of the population, things get boomier, as Bertie Ahern might have put it, for them, whereas another section, things get actually worse. And, and as you're right, that's where, unfortunately, that kind of fertile ground could be for some of these extremists. The reason that we're not going to have as bad a recession as we thought we were going to have is because the people who made the least amount of money were paying the least amount of tax anyway. So the exchequer wasn't as losing as much as I thought it was going to lose. It just creates a more unequal society. And that kind of leads me back to the issue we have over the recession is that society becomes more and more unequal. It will become much easier to convince people that their enemy is immigrant people and people who are different coming into the country rather than the people who keep the minimum wage at a certain a certain rate or you know allow companies to have very low corporation tax and terrible rights for workers so yeah I mean the recession probably won't be as bad for some people but those people got to keep their jobs anyway yeah very true um if I just want to turn to the north for a minute and one of the reasons I asked you to come on uh this week was because things happening in the north and if you don't mind me saying uh when we join before you're somebody who gives a very unique view on, on the basis. First of all, quite obviously, you're from Derry yourself, but I think you have a, a, a view that you can look beyond the sort of confines of, of the political media class or whatever. In that respect, two events, two very obvious events recently leap out. One, this botched invoking of the clause in the EU Brexit agreement known as Article 16, which would have effectively imposed checks on the Irish border in order to stop vaccines going from the south to the north this is of course when you know there was this hullabaloo over the vaccines and whether or not the EU would get enough of them as we know there was holy war over it and it was quickly reversed but what it did do was provide unionists and particularly the DUP with an opportunity to present themselves as I suppose victims of calumny once more and they were being oppressed and what have you then Last week, we had this incident where there was a memorial that's held every year on the anniversary of the murder of five civilians at the Sean Graham Bookmakers in the Armore Road in Belfast. That happened in 1992. Two PSNI officers came across it. Now, apparently, both were very inexperienced, but they intervened on the basis that they felt the COVID restrictions were being breached and reportedly, by all accounts, they did not handle it very well and they ended up arresting a man who, of all the people that they ended up arresting, this poor man had been a survivor of the killings, that's what, 29 years ago. So, and on that set off, you have on the other side, you have a, a lot of groups of nationalists declaring that once more policing is a problem and they are the victims once more of calumny. Things aren't going very well in terms of uh, the twain up there at the moment, Aoife. Uh, things aren't going well. Uh, that could be like the standing uh, tagline for the North. Uh, things aren't going well. Um, <laughs> this is an ongoing issue and I would preface this by saying that being the Chief Constable of the PSNI is an incredibly hard job it is probably one that a lot of people would not take for love nor money. And it is often uh, totally thankless. Now, we have had a range of different people take on that job. And 
I can safely say that Simon Byrne, who is the current Chief Constable of PSNI, has been controversial. The most controversial is one way to put it. He's an Englishman, is he? Sorry. I'm not actually sure where he's originally he's from. from his North, ac- anyway, his accent think. doesn't really give it away, but controversial was one way to say it. Clueless is another. It seems to be a lot of the time he just walks into controversies and it's always of his own making. So very, very early on in his tenure, on I think it was Christmas Day of all days, he took a picture outside the police station at Cross McGlen with two armed officers holding these really large guns and put it up um, as a kind it was seen at the time as a kind of show of strength. Um, Jeez. Now Cross McGlen, <laughs> if anyone <laughs> if anyone is not um kind of in the know when it comes to the North Creek, Cross McGlen would have been seen as one of the places in the troubles that you could not police. It was the heart of what was referred to as bandit country. Bandit country, basically. And it was seen as a kind of uh, look at we look at we can do, do the nationalist community. So that's the foot that he started off on. And it really hasn't gone much better in the last couple of years. I think the issue that he has now, and this is kind of a spot that you never want to be in in the PSNI, is that now both communities in the North think that the PSNI is against them. That's some achievement. <laughs> like for a long time, as everybody knows, um, the nationalist community had a massive issue with the police, which was then the RUC that became the PSNI. And now both communities feel that they are being policed differently. I think the issue now that we're seeing along with the Sean Graham is that it has all, it's bringing back a lot of memories for people, for nationalists in that area of how the police used to behave. And already, you know, there's conflict in information. So the solicitor for Mark Sykes, the survivor who was um, arrested, initially was told that there was, a, he was told that a serial went out for the police to attend the memorial um, because it was breaking regulations. Then they were told that it was actually just happened to be a police car driving past and they decided to stop. They had insult, the injury, the police car parked in the same place where the getaway car parked uh, for the gunman. And Mark Sykes, um, who was shot in the bookmakers, after they opened fire in the bookmakers, the gunman walked around and then re-shot all the men who were lying on the ground. Mark Sykes put his hands up in front of his face and was shot through the wrists. When he was arrested by the PSNI, they put handcuffs on him, which was seen by everyone. Mm. I was actually talking to a security expert who said there was absolutely no need um, to put handcuffs on him. But they put handcuffs on him um, behind his back, which irritated the already issues that he has from his um, gunshot wounds. Then they kept him in the police car for two hours until um, a solicitor attended. A solicitor was totally aghast at what happened. There's, there seemed to be no investigation into what happened. They straight away let go the two police officers. They suspended one of them. They moved the other one to a different department, even though there was supposed to be an inquiry going on. So now there's already rumblings within the police association that there's a bit of a scapegoating going on because management had obviously made a mess here and nobody wants to admit it. A lot of people are calling for the Chief Constable to stand down. Now, Michelle O'Neill, uh, the leader of Sinn Féin, has not 
she's kind of calling for cool heads, but she wants, you know, investigations on what's happening. On the other side of it, the loyalist and unionist communities feel that they see things like Bobby Story's funeral, in which Republicans and Sinn Féin broke a lot of public health rules and no one was arrested, even though the police were there. They feel that they are being targeted by the PSNI. They also feel like strangers in their own country because of Brexit. They feel like there's a border down the Irish Sea because there couldn't be a border on the island and therefore they were made to feel like their needs uh, were second best. And all of this is kind of come to a head now um, with, you know, we saw that the people were, the staff at the port were removed from their positions um, because of loyalist graffiti. Uh, they recently arrested two men for painting anti-Article 16 graffiti, which I think might be the most embarrassing thing you could ever be arrested for, <laughs> realistically. Of all, the, of all the graffiti. An EU treaty, yeah. <laughs> but um, It doesn't yeah, get so sexier than that. I know, it's all come to a head now and I just think it was already tense because of Brexit and, you know, the DUP got a very bad poll there a couple of weeks ago and the DUP have kind of let down the Article 16 kind of flame because they know that they might be able to crawl back and claw back some votes uh, that they have lost and what we're increasingly seeing is actually people are more likely to vote for the more fringe unionist parties now like the TUV because they don't feel represented by the DUP and it's kind of put the DUP in this position now where they don't know where to go and they're kind of clinging on to this Brexit thing as a kind of political tool that it might turn their fortunes around. Just in relation to the, the policing, just one thing, and this is just putting it completely from, from left field of view. If you were to take someone, for example, from Cork or uh, somewhere, for example, in the south of England or you know, somewhere completely removed physically from the north, 23, 24, 25 years of age, they join a police service. And it seems, for example, these two fellas were very inexperienced. I think they were only there six months. And, you know, is it an integral part for them to be as au fait with the sensitivities of what went on 30 years ago than, for example, somebody like yourself who grew up there or even somebody of my generation who... who who were well aware of it and understand the things. I'm just wondering, you would have thought on one level that that generation would, 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 you you could understand that they would not be aware of the sensitivities attaching here. Or is that completely naive? It's completely naive. If I thought people were going under the PSNI and were not being trained about cultural sensitivities and community sensitivities, I would have serious concerns about the PSNI. Right. It is it is unthinkable to be honest that they were not, that they I'm not saying I don't know if they are trained but what I'm saying is when the PSNI was first formed you know when they had all these recommendations and it was all very human rights based it was actually you know I was talking to a, a security specialist recently who said they were actually, you know, one of the most human rights-based police services in the world. They had a human rights advisor. All of this, I would find it unthinkable to think that they mm. weren't trained in the different issues within the community. And there are a lot of people who join the PSNI from England, um, from other places. But it would be unfair on the officer, officers themselves not 
they have trained them yeah. because they are not like any other police force in the yeah. world. Yeah, and that's the other thing that, you know, and some people will say this and, you know, it's easy to say it when you're removed from, but some people will say we're now 23 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. We're 27 years on from the major ceasefire, although it was broken once. And it still seems very difficult to get away from all the old enmity, you know. I mean, you know, it's obviously a different place. There's no violence, thankfully, but... And the other thing that arises there is, has the dynamic changed completely as a result of Brexit and what is in prospect now? Particularly in my mind anyway, if, for example, Scotland uh, votes and decides to leave the UK, I mean, is that inevitably going to bring forward by a much greater time span the prospect of a border poll here? Um, Well, we already had an independence referendum, I suppose, and there was a lot of talk about a border poll then although Scotland voted against it. I don't think it's... I think, obviously, Brexit has sped it up. But we saw in the Sunday Times poll a couple of weeks ago that most people in Northern Ireland, a majority of people in Northern Ireland, want a border poll in the next five years. They mightn't necessarily want a United Ireland, but they at least want the question done and done with. As someone who lived in Scotland during the independence referendum, I can say that if they don't get it, the question doesn't go away. That's wishful thinking. They just mm. keep on talking, <laughs> talking about it. Isn't that the key that people who are pushing for it now, even if the prospect of of uh, it being voting for United Ireland doesn't come about, the fact that you're pushing for it and it happens, it's on the agenda and it doesn't go away. Is, is, isn't that as much driving it as the prospect that in a, in the first vote within the next few years, sometimes there might actually be a vote for United Ireland? Yeah, totally. Like as soon as, you know, I was working as a journalist uh, in Scotland during the independence referendum and when they lost, the the question never went away. They argued about it continually. Afterwards, they argued about because then obviously Brexit came along and the whole point of the no campaign in Scotland was that they would they would lose their place in the EU, but then Scotland lost their place in the EU anyway. So I think for the North, Brexit has really put it into perspective. For a lot of people, now I'm not talking about you know people who would be really, really staunch unionists, but we know that dem- demographically, unionists are decreasing in Northern Ireland, and it's come from people who don't consider themselves people who would usually have considered themselves Protestant or unionists don't consider themselves anything anymore. These in-betweeners are going to be the people who decide what the future, the constitutional future of the island is. These are people who are maybe my age and younger. Their parents weren't religious. They don't see themselves as Irish or British. Or maybe they see themselves as both Irish and British. They're the ground that either the DUP or Sinn Féin and the SDLP or whatever, they're the ground that people are going to have to fight over because it's not the people who have already made up their minds. It is the people in the middle. And it's all going to come down to economics as well. It's all going to come down to houses, jobs, money, the economy and the NHS because that's what it came down to in Scotland as well. But that's something that can be portrayed in a particular way that's completely off the Richter scale as happened for example in Brexit. Do you know what I mean? The way people campaign they can suggest going into United Ireland is going to be economically the greatest thing ever or economically the worst thing ever and really it might have very little uh, connection to the reality of the scenario. Yeah, totally. Like I think, you know, the Brexit issue and the Scottish independence referendum like basically showed them that that like 
they said, if you vote yes and Scotland becomes independent, you're going to lose your place in the EU. And lo and behold, David Cameron called a referendum and they lost their place in the EU anyway, even though Scotland voted against Brexit. So all those things are going to be really, really to the front of mind when it comes to the border poll. And to be honest, if it is in the next five years, I would worry because I know for a fact the Irish government has not done any planning. And I would assume with the DUP in charge up in the north, they haven't done any planning either. And it could be a bureaucratic nightmare and could be worse than the outcome of Brexit that we're seeing now. But the key there, of course, is how the British government feel about it, because according to the Good Friday Agreement, the Secretary of State is the person who must decide whether or not it happens. And that could be a function of politics. For example, if you had an independent Scotland, London might decide, well, we're going to hang on to Northern Ireland, or we're not, whatever reason, rather than it being a matter of um, going along on the basis of, as according to the agreement, whether there's a genuine belief that there could be a majority in favour of the United Ireland. Yeah, but that, like, the Secretary of State does have the power, but he doesn't have, like, all ruling power. So if there were polling on both sides of the border that said that people either wanted a border poll or wanted a United Ireland, he would be pressured and they call in such a referendum. They're trying to fight that in Scotland at the minute. They keep saying, you know, you're not going to get one. And Nicola Sturgeon keeps saying, well, it's not in your gift because as a devolved power, if there's Poland that says we want it, you have to give it to us. And it will be the same um, for Ireland, North and South. And were it to happen, would you predict it would end up with the United Ireland if there was to be a border poll within the next five years? I really, I really don't know the amount. <laughs> ah, go on, you must. Of anti-Northern <laughs> sentiment, I get down here. I can't imagine really? you would be opening your arms to us very quickly. That's interesting. Anti-Northern sentiment. Mm. No, I might be sounding ignorant here, but would you detect a lot of that? Mm, mostly. No, I don't want to tire everybody with one brush because I've said this on the last podcast as well. But it is tends to be mostly um, Dublin. Kind of Leinster, older people, people who are very well off um, or happy and comfortable in their means, Leinster kind of focus. I mean, that's not always the case, but it tends to be older men, especially, who have their minds made up that you couldn't do anything with the North. And geez, would you ever go up there? And I don't, and if you don't like it down here, why don't you go back up there? I get that quite a bit. Yeah, it just reminds me, uh, Tommy Tiernan the other night, I saw him on telly, he had one line, I think it was Stephen Ray was interviewing, he was talking about, uh, he might have been talking about the United Nations, but he said about uh, the Unionists, he said, oh, sure, when we put up with Cork people, we can put up with the Unionists, no problem. <laughs> I'm surprised there wasn't insurrection after that kind of a comment on national television. Uh, Aoife, sorry, on a more serious note, just to finish up very briefly, Sunday is the 40th anniversary of the Stardust tragedy. Uh, it's something you have written about and you've written quite passionately about it, if I may say. Are the relatives any closer to getting to the truth? We have this tribunal that's scheduled to start. Is that still on schedule to take place pretty soon? It's Yeah, it keeps it got put off a couple of times because of COVID-19, but they are basically working around that and we should see movement now in the coming weeks and months. And as far as I know um, from speaking to the solicitor and stuff for most of the families, um, everything is is trucking along. Obviously, it's going to be a bit different because of COVID-19, but things are moving, at least. You know, there was years of stagnation um, and campaign and stagnation from the state, not from the families, because all they did in the years on between was campaign for a new inquest. Um, we know it's going to be 
the biggest and longest inquest in the history of the state. They need to find, I believe, cause of death for every single person who died in the fire. Um, we know, you know, it's unlikely they're going to be able to come out with a, a solid kind of cause of death or cause of the fire. There's, you know, issues with memory, a lot of the evidence of, you know, degraded. We're talking about something that happened 40 years ago. There wouldn't have been, you know, a lot of records, issues like that. So I think the families are happy it's happening. They've worked for a really long time to see it happen. But you need to remember, like most victims uh, in this country, they are quite used to being trampled over. Um, they're quite used to disappointment from the state. They've had to basically spend full, there are grandchildren now of Stardust victims who have spent their entire lives as part of this campaign for a new inquest. So they are optimistic. Um, a lot of them are quite nervous about it. They're quite worried hearing about, you know, the state that their loved ones were left in and, you know, how the state treated their families uh, after the fire and the mistakes, the number of mistakes that were made from every um, person who should have been more responsible. So, yeah, they're, it's... It's coming along, but we'll probably not see more movement now until another couple of weeks or months or so. Yeah, apologies there. I mentioned the tribunal. Of course, it's it's the inquest is what is um is happening. And when you say it's predicted to be the longest, I mean, is there any what kind of time span do you think you're talking about? At the start, they said it might run on the August, and now they're saying it might run on longer than that because it hasn't. It has. We've had a few pre-trial hearings, but the full you know, program hasn't started yet. So we could be running on the Christmas next year. Yeah, and it's just another of a whole series of incidents involving people um, who were victims in some form or another going back 40, 50 years in the state and the way they were treated. And I'm thinking in particular of the likes, the, the recent um, developments there was around Joanna Hayes in the Kerry Babies, uh, quite obviously the likes of the mother and baby home. But isn't it interesting often, and these are very different types of scenarios, but they have that in common. Isn't it interesting often that, Christ, it takes so long for people to have some modicum of closure and, as they would see it, justice. But we can only hope that, um, despite the pandemic, to get through the stardust at this stage, they certainly deserve it for how long they've been fighting for this. Yeah, I think a lot of it is to do with people power as well. The state is never going to turn around and say, sorry, if it's not bounced on it. We saw it with cervical checks. We saw it with the modern baby homes. We'll see it with the stardust. The government in Ireland, no matter who's in power, will not go out of their way to be helpful or apologise unless they have to. And I think it's a great shame. And I don't think there is one family left in Ireland who hasn't been touched by something like this and how to get a state apology for whatever it was. And I would like to thank now that governments and politicians that we have now could learn that lesson rather than putting things off and putting things on the back burner and hoping it'll go away in the hope that they probably won't have to do a state apology in 10, 15 years' time. No, Aoife, very true, absolutely. And it's something that, as you say, it seems to be in the DNA of governments in general, and we've seen a lot of it in this country, particularly the way society has evolved here over the last 70, 80 years. 
Aoife, Aoife Moore, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for that today. Thank you, folks, for listening. I uh, also want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can get the podcast in all the usual places. You can let me know what you think on the Twitter machine at, at McCliff. Take it handy and we'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.